Okay, so this past two seminars that we've had, we've been having seminars in the mornings, on Sunday mornings during our BFG hour, and we've had 12 weeks of the first set of our seminars, and I had the privilege of the first time teaching through a seminar on marriage, moment-by-moment marriage, and this past six weeks, we did purity in a porn-saturated culture or world. And so, you know, those two opportunities have just got marriage on the mind and uh, God really wanting us to have holy marriages that really represent the love between Christ and his church. And I, I have a passion for wanting every single one of you to experience Marriage as God designed it. Now, not everybody's married. Not everybody's going to be married. But if you are married, we definitely want you to make sure that you're applying God's will in every every passage, every detail that God has designed marriage to be. That would be great joy to see that, and I think you'd have great joy in experiencing it. For those that are not married, uh, it's important for us to all know the truths and to encourage this i mean marriage is a huge part of life part of the structure of society and without godly marriages uh, it brings about the decline of society so what we want to talk about today is is love i have the opportunity to do marriage counseling a lot of times i, I love encouraging people in their marriage and i love seeing the holy spirit uh, change people in their marriages. What a what a beautiful thing it is to see people grow in holiness in their relationships. <clears throat> so, this brings us to this topic of of love. You know, love is something that you hear every single day. People want love, don't they? People desire love so much. It's the theme of almost every song. It's usually about how love's gone wrong, though. Sadly. Did you know there are 47 different songs with the title, I Love You? Pretty fascinating. Well, you know, the Bible tells us where love comes from, doesn't it? It says straight out, God is love, right? But when we think about God being love, we usually think of his love for us. That's certainly an expression of love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. God's loved us by sending his Son, and we're expected to love one another. If we don't love one another, then we don't know God, because God is love. But before we get all focused on God loving us, we need to understand what, it, what does it really mean that God is love? There's something integral to his nature. Part of his, uh, his very essence is to be love. And Sometimes we only think about his loving us because of the gospel and because we think of God only as uh, the unity, the, the one being which God is. But We need to get into the intra-Trinitarian relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to really understand uh, the the essence and the different characteristics of God's love. We get a glimpse of this in John chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. 
Jesus, the Son of God, says to the God the Father this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. <clears throat> the Son talks to the Father, and he says, you know, you sent me, to do this work, to do this ministry, and you loved me. You loved me and sent me. There's been an eternal love of the Father for the Son and Son for the Father, and this has been part of the essence of who God is. The personal relationships between the three persons of the Trinity, we need to understand love in that relationship is definitional. God experiences love because that is who he is. That's, that's what he is like. And just think about that. blows your mind a little bit that, that we are really insignificant. Except that God made us significant by creating us. And decided to love us. But God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that relationship with one another are perfectly self-sufficient not in need of anyone to love or to be loved by. What I want us to do today is, first of all, we're going to look at the nature of that love relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, and we're going to learn a little bit about what love is like and how we should pattern our love relationships after God. But then, primarily, I want us to focus on that love that is on loan to us, so to speak, from God to put into display in marital relations. And we're going to look at the Song of Solomon for that. First of all, let's just look at the love between God the Father and God the Son. We don't have a lot of detail about the relationship with the Holy Spirit, but we do have uh, specific verses about this. First of all, I want you to notice that love gives. In John three thirty-five, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. But just think about that. The Father wants to glorify the Son. The Son wants to glorify the Father. The, the Spirit inspires the Word of God and makes known uh, the gospel of this glorious uh, love between the members of the triune Godhead. John three thirty five says the, the Father loves the Son and gives him all things. I mean, that's, that's beautiful, isn't it? That you love someone and so you give. That's what our relationship should be characterized by, that I'm just giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. Are you giving in your marriages? It's so easy to be the opposite, to be selfish. But we see from God that love shares, John 5, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. You just... It's just fascinating the word picture that we get there of the, the father showing the son all the things that he's doing. You just think about a, a family relationship and, and a father uh, bringing a child in to his w wood shop or, or to uh, his, his workplace. You know, and just, just showing him all the things that he's doing. So love gives and love shares and, and love serves look at john ten seventeen. for this reason the father loves me because i lay down my life so that i may take it again 
the son is serving by giving his life. Giving, sharing, serving. I mean, these, these are just words I want you to just start letting rattle around in your brains for a moment this morning. And then when we apply it to marriage, I just want you to see how beautiful this relationship is designed to be. We see that love submits in John 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. They told his disciples, get up, let us go from here. Well, isn't that beautiful? The, the son wants to show the father that he loves him. And the father has commanded that the son would accomplish this great work of redemption. But you don't see the son saying, you know, I'm going to do this for myself, or I'm going to do this for the people that are going to be my sheep. But he focuses on the Father. I want to glorify the Father. I want to, to serve him. I want to give my life for him. I'm going to submit to him. And, you know, of course, we can apply that to marriage and that a wife is supposed to submit to her husband. Wives, do you have a joy in that? Do you have a desire to, to give to your husband in that way, to submit to him? Not because you have to, but with a delight in this love relationship. We see that love continues John 15, verse 9 says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. God's always loved the, the Son. God the Father's always loved the Son, and they're going to abide in that love for all of eternity. That'll never change. You know, and so Jesus tells his disciples, Abide in my love. Abide in this same love. We're called and privileged to receive this kind of love and to be able to share it. Love honors. John 17, this is a little bit longer passage. John 17, verse 22. Jesus says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they... Also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. What a conversation, huh? God the Father, God the Son, wanting to bring glory to each one, to bring honor to each one. And then love, we see from all these examples, is expressed, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and they are going to see something astonishing happen. All of a sudden, God gives Jesus an appearance of glory. And we read in verse 2, His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And then in verse 5, it says, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and God speaks from the cloud. And he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father loves the Son, and he says he does. That should be a very basic fact. 
that you tell people that you love them. That in your marriage, we're going to see, boy, Song, Song of Solomon is going to just go above and beyond that. But this is something essential in your marriage, that you tell your wife, that you tell your husband, I love you. Notice, he says, this is my beloved son. He points out to everyone, I love him. And then we see that love delights in the object of its affection. He says, this is my beloved son. And then he says, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father is absolutely pleased in his son. So we're going to see this kind of love that God has in himself with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that is given to us to experience in human relationships. We should see this in the church. We should see this with parents to children. We should see this in every kind of human relationship that the love of God would be poured out and then acted out in every human relationship. But specifically, we want to look today at the Song of Solomon and see how it should be expressed in marriage. So let's look at the love of husbands and wives in the Song of Solomon. We've got a few hours, right? Scott exegeting a whole book of the Bible, right? first thing I want you to see is that love is to be valued. We need to just have this concept in our minds of that we value love. In Song of Solomon chapter 8 verse 6, it says, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Powerful statement about love. The book of the Song of Solomon has been interpreted in many different ways throughout the, the history of the church. Uh, some have seemed to be offended by or adverse to its uh, sexual references and, and therefore have seen it more as an allegory of uh, Christ and his church. Uh, there have been many other ways to take it, but we're going to look at it, as I believe it is, as a, a book that extols in a very poetic way the beautiful relationship of love and intimacy in marriage. We're going to see at the end of this that, yes, marriage itself is to reflect the love of Christ for the church. But we're not going to get to that yet. We have to make sure we apply what God wants us to get from this book in the Old Testament. So love should be valued in chapter 8, verse 6, when he talks about the seal over his heart. Speaking of the absolute devotion of our love. That my love for my spouse should be just a love that's like a seal on my heart. And then we speaks of the, the ownership like a seal on your arm. It's, it's as if you have a seal. You have the wedding band. I belong to my spouse. 
It says, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. The power of love cannot be resisted. If somebody truly and purely sets their love upon you, you're going to feel it. It's going to be powerful. True love is an unquenchable fire. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. And true love is more valuable than anything on earth. He says, if a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Somebody shows up at your door and says, I'll give you anything in the world you ask me. To have the love that your spouse gives you should be absolutely despised. Nothing could buy that from you. We should value love. And second, love is to be expressed. And it should be expressed verbally. So we should value love, but then we should tell people how we love them. Tell our, my wife or my husband. Uh, my husband, if you're a woman, the and, you know, and, and let me take a little side there for a second. Um, upholding marriage is so crucial for our day and age. And when we talk about marriage, we're talking about God created them male and female. There should be one woman, one man, committed for life, and. That's what we have here as a picture in the Song of Solomon. But we need to be expressing that love verbally. You need to just tell your spouse, and I'll, I'll come from the, the husband's side, and, but you apply it both ways, okay? Tell your wife that you love her. Look at some references here. Chapter 1, verse 7. These are just references that uh, you have the lovers to one another. In verse 7, she says... Tell me, O you whom my soul loves. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. On my bed at night, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchman who makes the rounds in the city found me. And I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let go. Do you love your spouse that way? Husbands, do you see that they are a person that your soul loves? The deepest part of you has this focused affection and value. That's what God has God the Father has for the Son and for the Spirit and that he has for us. He sets his love upon us and he will not be deterred. We should have this soul kind of love for our spouse. It's a love that goes beyond just saying I love you, but I I deeply, seriously love you with all of my heart. Anybody remember the old... uh, Hoagie Carmichael song, Heart and Soul. Heart and Soul, I fell in love with you. Heart and Soul, the way a fool would do madly. 
Are you madly in love with your spouse? You should be. You've got to get back there. You've got to cultivate it. Second, refer to her with affectionate names. Part of a romance in a marriage is that lovers deeply develop a secret world. They end up having their own uh, kind of uh, language, right? You have your own language, your own pet names, things you call each other, affectionate terms. Some of the more generic ones are honey, sweetie, sweetheart, babe. But in the Song of Solomon, the lover has nine names for his spouse or her spouse. And each one conveys some kind of a a powerful truth. Uh, I think it is he calls her my love in verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love till she pleases. Chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and how delightful are you, my love, with all your charms. Do you tell her that she's your love? Do you have a a term like that? My love, my love, come, let's uh, go to the beach. My love, may I just stare into your eyes for three hours? Just trying to get a little romantic here. Um, Call her uh, your darling. How about darling? Song of Solomon 1, 9. Nine times he calls her his darling. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Verse 15. How beautiful you are you, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. 2.10. My, my beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. 4.7. <clears throat> You're altogether beautiful, my darling, and there's no blemish in you. You're as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. So you see this, you know, my love, my darling. Uh, 25 times he calls her my beloved. I'll just give you a little sampling here. 113, my beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. 116, how handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. And I love this one, chapter 2, verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. In chapter chapter 5, verse 16, it says in there, This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then I love chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And finally, 710, I am my beloved's, and my desire, and his desire is for me. When you say, my beloved, there's, there's a sense of ownership. There's a sense of uh, uniqueness and exclusivity. You are the one I love. You're the one that's dear to me. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. 
He also calls her my beautiful one. Two, two times, chapter, 10, or chapter 2, verse 10. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one. Same thing in uh, verse 13. Do you see her as your beautiful one? We're going to talk about the descriptions that are given later in this passage, but, but that's a, a name that's given. He calls her my dove three times. Chapter 2, verse 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, she says, open, or he says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. Chapter 6, verse 9. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. See, that's a little uh, name that he has for her. My dove. My darling. My bride. You ever call your wife your bride? Well, we've been married for 55 years. She's not my bride anymore. But she is. The day you marry your bride, she's always going to be your bride. And it behooves you to remember that wedding day. <laughs> Song of Solomon, chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 8 says, Come with me, my Come with me, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. So you just hear that consistent repetition of my bride, my bride, my bride. Remember the day that you married your bride or your groom? What a beautiful day. What a wonderful, special day for most people that was. It's good to think back, to remember, and to always keep in mind that that person is the one that you married, the one that you took the vows to be with and to love for your whole life. Now, here's one that uh, may seem a little odd. You, you heard me read just a minute ago that he also said, my sister. Five times he calls her my sister. Chapter 4, verse 9, you've made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. And uh, he refers to her as his sister a few times. And this may seem a little odd to us because he didn't marry his actual biological sister. But the term was used in some of their uh, poetic work and their uh, literature as a common expression of closeness in relationship. So really it was an expression that, you know, we're married, so now we're, we're blood family. We have a very close uh, relationship. We are relatives now. And, you know, we get that kind of a concept, but they use that as a, a term of endearment of the permanence of the relationship because your sister is always going to be your sister. I mean, you can, you can divorce, sadly, in marriage and, and no longer be husband and wife, but you can't undo being somebody's sister or brother, can you? They'll, I mean, they'll always be your sister or brother. And so that's an expression of the permanence of that but, you know, as a Christian, I think this is a good way to think about things as well, though. One of the most special things in my relationship with Myra 
is that we are brother and sister in Christ. And in fact, that's why we got married. Because I saw in her someone whose affection for Christ and love for Christ was contagious and intriguing. And by God's grace, she saw the same thing in me. We, we saw that we were set on the course of a love for Christ. And we were busy serving, busy discipling and teaching and being involved in, uh, in all that's involved in a Christian relationship with God and also in the church. And, and I just want to advise you, young people, if you are looking to get married, if you really have a desire to be married, look for someone who loves Christ. Look for someone who spends time in His Word and knows His Word and prays and speaks about spiritual things, has spiritual conversations, intentionality, that they are serving in their spiritual gifts, that they seek out opportunities to be discipled and to be taught and to be with the people of God, that they're evangelistic. They want to tell of their love of Christ to other people. Look for that kind of a person. Because if they don't have that, they're not gonna, probably not going to just all of a sudden become that once you marry them. But if you already are married, seek to be that kind of a person and encourage your spouse in that way as well. <clears throat> Sometimes it's funny, my, some of my older uh, adult children will come around sometimes and I, I might put my arm around one of my sons and go, how's it going, brother? <clears throat> and they look at me kind of, the first time I did that, they look at me kind of odd, you know. Well, Dad, that's weird. You know, why are you calling me brother? <clears throat> I said, because... More important than my relationship you, to you as your father is that I'm your brother in Christ. That's more important. So it's most important. You know, did you know that the, the one relationship that's going to go on throughout all eternity between my wife and I is that she's my sister in Christ? Marriage ends in this life. But that brother and sister relationship, that's going forever. So call her your sister. Then we see, call her my perfect one. It's Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. <clears throat> At the end of verse 2, he calls her my perfect one. And then uh, chapter 6, verse 9, my dove, my perfect one. And then finally, call her my friend. Chapter 5, verse 16, it says, This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Marriage is intended to be one of the most intimate friendships there is. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, and Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, both indicate that marriage is supposed to be a covenant it's a vow, it's a, it's a promised relationship. But it's also to be a companionship. It's a covenant of companionship. You're supposed to be, as Pastor Scott read from Proverbs, exhilarated by the wife of your youth. We're supposed to be friends. 
You need to cultivate that friendship, communication, spending time together, enjoying one another, finding things that you can enjoy together. Because Satan and this world and your flesh want to drag it apart, want to break it apart, want to make you at each other's enemies rather than friends. So call her my friend. Okay, so you have enough... Uh, terms of endearment to, uh, to practice this week, okay? So I want you to mark a few of them down and, and try them out because you want to find one that they like. You know, there's nothing, nothing worse than coming up with a pet name for somebody and they don't like it, and so it doesn't convey, it doesn't accomplish what you want. <clears throat> now, it's important for you to tell your spouse that you're attracted to them. We talked about the wedding day. You know, it's easy when you're young and, and looking your best uh, to be attracted but this is something you start with and you should continue with throughout your whole life if you think properly and you recognize that yes time gravity <laughs> decay uh, debilitations injuries all kinds of things are going to affect the way you look but if you have this focused love upon your spouse, even in your older age, you're going to find many, many things physically attractive about them as well. And this is what we see uh, that we should practice here. <clears throat> Tell her that she's beautiful. Nine times he tells her that she's, she's beautiful. Uh, we saw that he called her his beautiful one, but he also refers to her simply as beautiful. Song of Solomon, verse, chapter 1, verse 8 says, If you do not know my beautiful, most beautiful among women, and I'm, just gonna re- I'm not going to give you all the reference, I'm just going to read kind of an ongoing narrative here. Uh, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There's no blemish in you. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. You are as beautiful as Terzah. Who is that that grows like the dawn? As beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. How beautiful are you, and how beautiful are your feet and sandals. There's one. Good thing we're in a beach community. We can use that one all the time. Chapter 7, verse 6. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. So get used to saying, you're beautiful. Practice, you're beautiful to me. And and think about setting her as your standard, men. And women, set your husband as your standard of what beauty is. And you won't be distracted by the the changing fads and infatuations of culture and the things that are set up as fantasy, really, that nobody can meet those standards. We have her telling him that he's pleasant in chapter 1, verse 16. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Tell him he's pleasant. Men, be pleasant, so you can be called pleasant. Um, Still in chapter 1, verse 16, says how handsome you are. Tell him that he's handsome. Husbands, tell your wife she's beautiful. Wives, tell your husband that he's handsome. Tell her that she's lovely. Song of Solomon 1.10 says, Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of bead. 
beads. 2.14, for your, your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. 6.4, you're beautiful as Terzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem. Tell him that he's dazzling. Chapter 5, verse 10, my beloved is dazzling. Tell her that she's awesome. That's what I use a lot. You're awesome. She is. She's so awesome. Chapter 6, verse 4, you are as awesome as an army with banners. And we have the, the word delightful. Chapter 7, verse 6, how beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Tell her that she's unique. Chapter 6, verse 9. My dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is pure, the pure child of the one who bore her. Tell her that you love her voice. Chapter 2, verse 14. Oh, my dove, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. Sadly, a lot of times people grow to despise their spouse so much that they even just hate to hear their voice. Don't let it get there. And if it has gotten there, let the word of God change you by the spirit of God. I just encourage you to read Song of Solomon and apply it to your marriage. Let, let God's spirit just change your heart towards that person to, to know I should be Speaking this way to my spouse. I should be even delighting in hearing their voice. <clears throat> Tell her that you love her name. Do you love her name? Myra. Just sounds wonderful, doesn't it? <clears throat> Just think about your, your spouse's name. Do you love their name? Say it over and over. <clears throat> Tell your lover smell. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Chapter 4, verse 10, How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils? <clears throat> the fragrance of your garments. And even in chapter 7, verse 8, And the fragrance of your breath is like apples. <clears throat> Now, there's some things we can do to make ourselves smell better. But <clears throat> Now, here's where it starts to get a little bit more personal and intimate in this Song of Solomon. Tell her that you love her body. Tell him that you love his body. <clears throat> we have a lot of bodily descriptions throughout Song of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 10 is pretty tame. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. Chapter 4, look at chapter 4. We have some extended passages here. We'll just read through. <coughs> Excuse me. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Probably has to do with being gentle and tender. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Don't use that one. <coughs> flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. The, the idea there is if you're looking up at the mountains, you see this flock of goats kind of being herded down, and it looks like a kind of a flowing, majestic 
hair that's kind of flowing over the, the shoulders or whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Come up with your own illustration. Um, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost their young. She has white teeth, and she has all of her teeth. <clears throat> verse 3, Your lips are like a scarlet thread. They're red. <clears throat> your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. And pomegranate is one of these uh, figures of speech that's used throughout uh, ancient Near Eastern poetry to refer to that which is desirable and sexually desirable. So he's, you know, he's talking about her, his attraction to her. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Not a, not a good one to use probably, but... <clears throat> What he's talking about really, though, is he's saying it's statuesque, it's, it, it's beautiful, it's lovely. He's using all kinds of things that he thinks are lovely in their culture or are awe-inspiring, like a tower or, you know, being a, a military commander. You know, he'll even use um, military uh, metaphors as well. <clears throat> Verse 5, your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Just probably speaking of the softness. Verse 11, your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Sounds kind of sticky, but uh, probably sweet and enjoyable is the idea he has. Then we have the wife for the husband, chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. She says, his head is like gold, pure gold. It's, it's precious to her. His locks are like a cluster of dates and black as a raven. Apparently he has black hair. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. He seems like she's focusing in on his pupils in the setting of, of, of milk, of whiteness there. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. She has this you know, on her mind kissing him, thinking about his lips. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl, which speaks of his value. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires, probably their idea of a six-pack. <clears throat> his legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as cedars, strong. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is holy desirable and we're not done uh, he goes back in chapter 7 how beautiful are your feet and sandals O prince's daughter the curves of your hips are like jewels and the work of the hands of an artist your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine he, he can't get enough of her <clears throat> your belly is like a heap of wheat don't use that one <clears throat> <clears throat> probably has to do with skin color, the color of wheat, or, you know, that he's nourished. Um, verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a, a tower of ivory, probably speaking of uh, finely crafted. Your eyes are like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. 
Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces toward Damascus. Uh, Probably, speaking of symmetry and beauty. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine. So you have two people here that, that look at each other and notice how God has made each of them. And they, they appreciate that. And, and they make a point to notice each other and to be attracted to one another. And it's, it's so important for this to be something that, that you enjoy each other's body. So you enjoy what the person looks like. The lips you kissed on your wedding day are the same lips. Yes, there's changes. But you need to cultivate that attraction with your spouse. It's, it's so lovely to see uh, people who've been married maybe uh, 50 or more years and, and see that there's still that spark. There's still that affection. There's still that attraction. Uh, she's as beautiful to him then as she was on their wedding day. Something to aspire to. So you should tell her that you're attracted to her and tell her that she excites you. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 9. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. Wow, to have that kind of a desire, that kind of an excitement with your spouse. In chapter 5, verse 4, she says, My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. She should still make your heart beat faster. Well, love is to be expressed. All of this, we've just got to the verbal part. But can you imagine how set up for physical intimacy you are if you have all of this going on in your relationship? You value love. You, you express that you love her, that you, you express with affectionate, tender names that are part of your private world, your own language, and then you uh, express attraction and show that you're excited for one another. Man, I mean... What better preparation could you have for the act of lovemaking? And by the way, I like that terminology of lovemaking because so much of our culture is focused on sex in such vulgar and horrible, deformed ways. When you get married, young people, when you get married, the physical relationship between a man and a woman is to be an act of love. You're trying to show this person how much you love them. And they're supposed to be showing you how much they love you. Yes, it's enjoyment for both. But that's the point. So love is to be expressed physically. The passage that Pastor Scott read in 
Proverbs chapter 5 tells us that there are many metaphors and figures of speech that relate to sexual intimacy in marriage in the ancient Near Eastern poetry. And it's pretty clear from Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, where it talks about drink water from your own cistern, fresh water from your own well. These shouldn't be dispersed among the streets and shared by others. And then it talks about adultery and uh, prostitution and fornication and things like that that would be outside of the realm. And so we see in the book of Song of Solomon many different uh, metaphors that, that poetically and uh, beautifully speak of the act of lovemaking. And poets would choose things that would be desirable, things that would be enjoyable to refer to this. And so we see lots of drinks referred to in the Song of Solomon. We see wine and water and milk and pomegranate juice. So when you're writing your, your, uh, your poetry to your spouse, you can use orange juice if you want. You, you can use whatever other drink. <clears throat> but the lovers are told to drink, imbibe, enjoy. Uh, we see that food is used. You have spices and honey and honeycomb and fruit and grapes and raisin cakes and apples and pomegranates. And all of these are used and the lovers are told to, to taste to enjoy. We see things that smell good are used to describe this relationship. Uh, we have flowers like lilies and henna blossoms, spices and perfumes and myrrh and other fragrances. We see things that are refreshing like oil and the wells of water and flowing streams. And if you count them all, there's a lot of places of lovemaking in the Song of Solomon. They're in the country, in the villages, in the wilderness, in mountains, in gardens, in the king's chambers, in vineyards, on a couch, in the banquet hall, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place, in her mother's house, and in a rock garden. These people were serious. And finally, there are all kinds of scenes of lovemaking. And that's what I want to kind of bring to an end here, is just to read some of the Song of Solomon, to, see the, to hear the beauty in this context of all we've laid here, of this committed, exclusive, passionate love. You can turn in your Bibles to that passage, Song of Solomon. We'll start in chapter 1. We're just going to take a few different excerpts. <clears throat> But just think of this in your mind as, as beautiful pictures of poetic lovemaking. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Verse 4. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Verse 13. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. Chapter 2. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. 
In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. Verse 14. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Chapter 3, verse 4. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. Chapter 4, verse 6. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Chapter 4, verse 10. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. And in verse 16, you are a garden spring, a, a well of fresh water, and streams of flowing from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Chapter 5, verse 1. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. <clears throat> Chapter 7, verse 8. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. Verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and the blossoms have opened, and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance, and over our doors are all its choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. Chapter 8, verse 2. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken my love until it so desires. Under the apple tree I aroused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave birth to you. And in chapter 8, verse 14, finally it says, Hurry, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. <clears throat> 
God wants your marriage to experience all of this committed, loving, passionate love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the love-making act is commanded. Verse 2, it says, Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This could seem kind of uh, just, okay, it's my duty. He has authority over my body. She has authority over my body. But when you put it in the context of all of God's love and this beautiful romantic picture, we see that it's a joy to fulfill this kind of a responsibility. And if we don't, Satan's there to tempt you and to destroy your marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Turn to one last passage with me. Ephesians chapter 5. We started with God's love. God is love by his essence. It is integral to who God is. We are loved and endowed by the ability to love by grace. We don't deserve it, but he enables us to to love. And he made man male and female knowing that he was going to accomplish not only creation, but also redemption, save a people for his own possession. And we who are saved by Christ, by faith in Christ, are part of the church. And ultimately, this is what marriage is intended to reflect, is the saving relationship of Christ, our Savior, to his church Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body." For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There's a lot in that passage. So that'll be my series for the next few weeks. Sorry, Pastor Scott. No, I would encourage you to read that, though. Take that passage, sit down with your, your husband or your wife, and read through it and see, are we presenting in our relationship something that would really model and show forth the gospel? Are you applying this? All of this we've talked about in your relationships. Excel still more if you are. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, there are perhaps people here today that their marriage doesn't experience any of this. But God, we know that there is no marriage that's without hope. All things are possible through Christ. In Him we have strength. We know that we have a great high priest that we can go to and find grace and mercy and help in our time of need. We know that you're able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We know that nothing is impossible with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would reclaim marriages for yourself and for your glory. That you would work in the hearts of people who have become hardened to soften them, to grant repentance, to, to help people to go back to the scriptures and say, what should my marriage be like? That they would begin to be molded and shaped, convicted and changed, renewed and transformed so that they would be able to love the way that you designed love and marriage to be. Lord, cause people to give a testimony to your grace and to your glory when marriages have changed. Pray that we would encourage one another in this as well. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.